morning, everyone. Um, let me just start with a word of prayer. <clears throat> I invite you to join me. God, that's a good word that complements what we're trying to do through this series. Thank you for the promise that says what you want to bring into our lives. It doesn't matter what the area is. It's light. It's illumination. So we don't have to struggle in darkness. We don't have to live inside the fear that comes from not knowing the direction that we should take, wondering, wondering if we're on the right path. When we're lost, God, light can bring us back to the place where not only we experience safety, but we can actually make progress. God, in this area of finances, um, maybe we feel like there's a lot of darkness. Darkness around us, darkness within us, challenges. We, we pray and ask as we continue to look to your word and to you that you would show us how to understand and use money so that we receive it as a blessing and we can extend it as a blessing so that the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, uh, self-control becomes synonymous with how we engage with our finances. There's a lot of different financial realities represented within this room from uh, young to old, different stages of life, different challenges, different opportunities. And so we pray and ask that your, your spirit would lead each of us individually, as couples, as families, as a community. We want to be spiritually vibrant and strong, God. And we want that strength and that vibrancy and that health to also show up in our finances. Please, please help us, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus draws out a really, really core principle that applies to all of the life of a disciple. But it has a particular point because it's focused on the issue of being faithful with what God has entrusted to us materially. In Luke 16, Jesus says, whoever can be trusted with very, very little can be trusted with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling, sorry, and whoever is dishonest with very, very little will, will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? This is a principle and a challenge of Jesus that cuts right to the core for all of us, certainly in the area of money. We, if you're a parent, you, you understand this principle. You entrust your child with a meager amount of responsibility or money, and you watch to see how they act. Now, how they act, if they mismanagement, that doesn't change your love and your desire for them to flourish and to, uh, and to care for them. But it does change the math in terms of how do I need to change maybe what I'm entrusting to them moving forward. Not because I don't love them, but because they're clearly not ready to handle this new opportunity, um, these funds, these new responsibilities. And Jesus says in this passage, our money is kind of like a litmus test. It's interesting, right? He says, if you can't handle managing worldly wealth, why would God trust you with true riches? We often think riches are the worldly wealth. 
And Jesus says, no, it's actually just a test. It's just a test to see whether or not you know how to handle things that are valuable. And God is testing us through our finances to see whether or not, not whether or not he loves us, not whether or not we are part of his family. He's testing whether or not he can unleash new and different and more expansive blessings into our lives. Because if we mismanage little, we might think, oh, well, if you gave me more, God, I will definitely take it seriously then. Definitely, for sure. But God's like, no, that's not the way life works. If you're not going to be faithful when you make $5, that doesn't, you know, you don't all of a sudden start being faithful when it's 50000 or 500000 Learn to be faithful where you are. And this is sobering for me because it means if I neglect to grow in my ability to faithfully and effectively use my material wealth, Jesus asks the question, why would God trust me with more? Again, this is a question completely divorced with God's love for us or salvation, but it is connected to God's ability to open up new avenues of blessing. How to handle our finances, whether you're five years old, 15, 35, 95, it has a direct bearing on the extent to which God can bless you and the extent to which God can prosper us. And I hope you heard last week that God does want us, you all, each of you to prosper. And that doesn't mean necessarily an ever escalating amount of money. It means filling your life and making you, filling your life with the things that make life rich. And that might include, might have a material dimension, but it has a relational dimension and a spiritual dimension and a psychological dimension. And these words from Jesus alone should spark us, should kind of act as smelling salts to say, yeah, no matter where I am, whether I feel like I'm doing well or okay or terrible, I want to figure out how to use my finances faithfully to be a conduit of blessing to those around me. Now, a first big step on that path is to make a budget. And we talked a little bit about that last week, a budget or a financial plan. I would use those um, synonymously because a budget is an intended plan of how you want to invest your money. And a budget is a plan to not just use your money, but really as a, um, it's, it's a very tangible black and white intention that says, this is what I want to invest in. These are the things, these are the domains that I want to make sure are getting a priority. And every budget that's healthy is going to touch on four priorities. The particularities of them are gonna be different, but every budget is going to be built, or that's healthy, is gonna be built around four priorities. Avoiding debt, giving generously, saving prudently, and spending strategically. Those are kind of like the four ingredients that form the secret sauce of a healthy uh, and life-giving, not just budget, but financial situation. And that's where we're gonna be going over the next few weeks. We're gonna be breaking those down. We're gonna be looking at the core biblical principles that undergird each of those. And again, even though the application for each of those might look different because our individual and family and uh, household financial circumstances are different, we're all gonna be sort of moving towards realigning our finances so that we are avoiding debt and giving generously and saving prudently and learning to spend strategically. 
So a budget or a financial plan for how we want to use our money is going to touch on these things. And a budget is very, very necessary in order for us to welcome financial peace and health and vibrancy into our lives, in order to build around God's priorities, which always have an overflow effect of blessing us. But a budget has a very significant limiting factor. And that is you and me. I was reading through Paul um, Tripp's book, Redeeming Money, and I came across this quote on budgeting. And I think it's, it's, it's on the money. He says, I believe that a good budget can be a powerfully restorative tool. But your budget does not have the power to rescue you from you. Because your budget has no power to control your willingness to follow it. If honest confession and commitment to a new way of living doesn't precede the establishment of a biblically wise budget, that budget will not lead the change. And I'm convinced that the reason budgets don't work for so many is that they, the underlying heart issues that have gotten them into money trouble have not actually been addressed. This is why, for example, today, even though it might be tempting to jump right into one of those topic areas, debt, spending, saving, giving, and beginning to think through tips and tricks and strategies, skill development, let's start working the budget. It actually misses what is happening when we do like we did last week, assess our finances across a few domains, begin to identify areas of concern, yellow light, red light, and begin thinking through, okay, how do I fix and repair that? A financial plan or a budget properly understood is actually a spiritual growth plan. That's what you're actually doing when you budget. Sometimes we have a conception of finances that is very dualistic, meaning finances are sort of connected to obviously material reality and it seems like a very unspiritual topic. And so when I think about spiritual growth, it actually doesn't even occur to me to pull those two domains together because spiritual growth might have a very uh, soft, personal, heart, emotion, um, sequestered understanding instead of how Jesus talks about it, which is a comprehensive devotion to honoring God with every area of your life, including your material wealth. And what Jesus says is money holds up a mirror to our souls. It shows us what is happening in the deep places in our hearts. And so simply working at the level of adopting and tweaking financial skills and habits actually won't do much. This is my experience, at least. I'm speaking for myself. I haven't found to do that much in moving those areas in my budget, which I identify as red or even yellow, substantially towards green. Maybe it works for a few weeks or a few months, but because the underlying issue driving the immaturity as it relates to spending, saving, giving, or debt isn't being addressed, I'm trying to solve the fruits of the issue instead of looking at the root of the issue. Most money problems, or not all, most, aren't really about money. They're about deeper issues. There's an issue or issues driving and manifesting through 
disordered use and immature or self-absorbed uses of money. And that's why financial literacy is not just about skill development and developing new skills, right? Here's a very basic definition um, of financial literacy that I totally agree with, but notice it. It says, to be financially literate is to possess a set of skills and knowledge that allows an individual to make informed and effective decisions with all of their financial resources. I agree with that definition. But notice what it says. It says it's a set of skills, yes, but also knowledge. And part of that knowledge, and again, here's an example of a unique resource within Christianity, because you will not get this if you go to a financial advisor, is the knowledge of your own heart and your own understanding. And what's the issue underneath the issue? What's driving the way that you understand and use money? at the deepest level of your core commitments and values. And do those align with how God has designed money to be used? And do you need to confess those things? Do you need to turn from those things and adopt a different path? How do you begin using your budget or your financial plan as a mirror to your own soul and say, I want to grow in my relationship with God. And as I do that in a mature and honest way, some, and maybe more than I would think, of the financial issues in my life will actually start to fall into place. You're not going to hear that if you go to a financial planner. You're not going to hear about disciplines of uh, spiritual disciplines, confession, turning away from patterns which are destructive. They'll work with you on the skill sets. They might even offer to take all that load. Just show me your finances. I'm going to put a plan in place. I'm going to lock it in. You just live your life. But that misses an opportunity for us to better understand what's going on in our own hearts. Why do I consistently keep going into debt? Despite the fact that I really don't want to. I'm pretty debt averse. But why does it keep going up then? Why is my giving non-existing, uh, non-existent or sporadic? And whether it's to the church or to other, like, anything. Just why is it so difficult for me? Why is it so easy? Like Rick talked about um, a few weeks earlier. It's just so easy to say, oh yeah, this would be helpful for me. This would be great. This would be great. And it seems like such a, a laborious turn to say, how could I use this to bless someone in my life? Why do I hoard my money? Why, despite my best intentions, are my finances characterized by a lot of like yellow and reds? I don't want that to be the case. What's happening? Right? Money problems, money issues are always the manifestation of a deeper issue. And that's why when you have people who come into large sums of money, whether an inheritance or lottery, it almost always makes their issues worse once you fast forward six to 12 months. Their psychological state, their emotional state, their relational state, their financial state almost always gets worse. Because we don't really solve disordered, dysfunctional, unhealthy money patterns by simply trying to work at the level of, well, I need more money or just some quick, quick fixes. If you're a Christian, your budget speaks to something much deeper, and that is an opportunity to identify and root out particular ways that money speaks to or whispers or pulls out 
your core temptations, your core sinful desires. And that can sound like a real heavy, like, ooh, sinful desires. Like we don't, we don't, a lot of people are uncomfortable, certainly in our culture, sometimes even within the church, of talking about anything as like sin, sounds very judgy, condemnatory. That's often because we have a very thin understanding of what that word means, right? Sin is just deliberately and purposefully violating the will of God. And sin is both an action, if I steal from someone, I sin, but sin is also a power. Paul talks about that in Romans. Sin is a power that is at work with me, where I want to do certain things, I want to even do the right thing, but then I find myself doing the very thing that I know is right and I want to do, but then I find myself doing the opposite. What's going on there? And if we don't understand sin patterns and how they show up in our lives, then we really are going to be, you know, it's the Henry David Thoreau quote, for every thousand people hacking at the leaves of evil, there's one hacking at the root. I want to be hacking at the root of evil in my life. I want to be hacking at the root of financial dysfunction, not downstream or out on the branches. If there's something rotten at the root, let's fix that. And what's rotten at the root is usually one of a very small number of sins. Let's talk about those seven deadly sins and how they are rooted and connected to our finances. Seven deadly sins are a traditional grouping in a lot of Christian traditions. They're grouped into, in a sense, root sins. They have different theologians and pastors over the centuries who said these are, in a sense, you know, you have a tree of, you know, all the ways that humans can bring destruction and disorganization and dysfunction and evil into the world. And it has a thousand branches. It can be expressed in all kinds of ways. But if you go back and try and uncover what is fueling that war, th that bullying, that um, self-absorbed posture, it all kind of connects to at least one of a limited number of kind of core sins. And these are pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, and sloth. Again, those are old school words. You're not going to hear that in many other places outside of a church. But I'm going to show you why it's so critical to have a working knowledge of those things and those uh, whispers in your own heart. So here's a basic definition of each of them. Pride is an excessive view of yourself, literally seeing yourself as superior to other people, usually with a disregard for other people. So because I'm above other people, I don't really worry about them. Greed is an excessive pursuit of material gain, be it food or money, could be land, could be social status, could be power. Wrath is not just anger, that's how it gets translated. That's not a great translation. It's much more visceral than that. Wrath is um, a, str a strong and deep hatred and anger towards another person that's usually characterized by vengeance. So someone has wronged me, and now I'm obsessed with exacting vengeance on this person. Envy is the intense desire to have something that someone else possesses. Lust is excessive sexual desire directed at someone with whom we actually have no right to have a sexual union or dynamic with. 
gluttony is excessive and ongoing consumption of food and drink, but it also applies to just an overall posture of consumption where we're just never satisfied. More, 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 more. Yes, more food. Yes, more drink, but it also could be more power. It could be more experiences. It could be more bodies, more pleasure. And then sloth is excessive laziness or failure to act and use one's talents. So a few things to note here. In almost all of the sins, the word excessive is used, which means there's a kernel of something which isn't wrong. It's not wrong to eat. It's not wrong to rest. It's not wrong to be angry in certain situations. But when those desires and emotions become hyperized, they're hyper, they're excessive, they're disproportionate to what is actually happening, and they take hold of us, that's when, again, it doesn't just become a sin of being wrathful and angry. I'm now under the control of a power that is directing my life. So yes, I might be rude and mean and bullying towards other people, and that's sinful, but there's actually a deeper power at work with me that is difficult to get out from under. Our finances, our budgets, our financial planning requires us to move into an awareness of what the core sins driving our financial disorder and disobedience, what those sins are. Our finances, our budget allows us to identify and then confess and then turn from ways that we are misusing what God has entrusted to us. Now, um, can we go ahead just to, yeah, this slide. So you've got these deadly sins, these root sins. I want to open it up for some interaction. You don't have to, you don't have to, this doesn't have to be confession time. You could say, well, I could imagine someone who struggles with this, <laughs> but it would be good. <laughs> what would be helpful is for us, and, and just to kind of work our imagination a little bit, to say, how could you see these sins manifesting in a destructive way of understanding income, assets, our debt, spending, saving, and giving? So just take one of those sins and say, I could see this being a problem in this area because... Whatever. So what would be one pairing that for you stands out as, oh, yeah, this, I could see how this, this would be a problem. Judith. Pride. Yep. Okay. How do you see those connected? So pride, you could say, I earned this. Bam. Yep. Totally. Absolutely. This is my money. That's a danger that uh, Deuteronomy, God speaks to God, uh, to the people in Deuteronomy about. When you come into the land, you're going to prosper. And then you might think, oh, by my hand, I prospered. And you'll forget to extend blessing to those around you. And pride will well up because you will think, oh, like you'll look at, you'll look at what you have and you'll say, I did that. So why should I have to give and care for someone else? So pride absolutely can affect not just our view of people, but whether or not we're meaningfully generous uh, towards anybody 
in our life? What's another sin that you see connected to a kind of disordered way of understanding or using our finances? Mike? I think our culture breeds uh, in lust. I mean, I look at, I drive a 22 year old truck. And I look at the ads that we do that point. Is there only $75,000? And I deserve it. <laughs> yeah. I need one of those. Cars. <laughs> and it causes me all for sure, yeah. Envy and lust. And this is challenging, but I think we could all agree generally what part of what marketing is designed to do is to spark envy within us, to give us a sense of lack or to say you could really attain the good life if you could get this. Now, again, there's lots of ethics around, you know, to what extent Christians can be involved in that kind of marketing. But setting that question aside, you can see how if you were in a sense, possessed by a desire to want to keep up with the, jo- with the Joneses. Maybe not for your whole life, but in a certain area. There would just be an obsession there that would pull you towards overconsumption and inability to say no, that you would literally fantasize about, oh, if I could just get this. When in reality, you have everything that you need and actually maybe have more than you need, source of a lot of blessing. What's another way you could see these interacting? Deborah. For sure, right? And our society is, so the connection was between a gluttony and debt and this driving impulse to say, I, I don't know, I don't know how or I don't want to say no to myself. And so credit becomes an easy way to see instead of credit as, um, as debt and something negative, I think the, the cultural winds have shifted. And most people, uh, you know, I certainly grew up at a time where even the language, well, credit is sort of like an extension of income or people used it like that. And so it becomes this window through which I don't have to practice restraint. I don't have to fast from buying things or saying no to myself. So yeah, if you have this a deep um, bent of the soul towards gluttony, towards what I have is not enough, I want more, this appetite that can't be satiated, you don't know how to satiate it, how helpful is it going to be to go to a financial planner or to anyone and have them say, like, yeah, you should just like not, not use credit cards? Oh, okay. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not necessarily a tactical thing. You can put all the tactics in place and you'll, it'll work for a few weeks or months, but then what has to happen is it'll get overwhelmed by this deep, deep heart impulse. What's maybe one more interaction that you see here, right? Yeah, so the comment was on how the, the seven deadly sins are, are dealt are, are rooted in a lot of emotions. And I would probably use a, a, a broader word there, not just emotions, but um, sort of like compulsions or impulsions. Yeah, passion. Uh, I mean, within Christianity, you sort of have a, a tradition where there's um, uh, p- passion. Uh, hmm. like this is kind of like sinful 
sinful desires and passions. And passions can actually be seen as something really positive. They can be passionate about the right things. There are sinful desires, but there's something about these uh, seven deadly sins that do speak to a, a compulsion, a, a yearning, that it's not easy just to logic our way out of it. You know, that, that expression, the heart wants what the heart wants. And there's kind of a truth there that when our hearts are um, held by sin, then we find all kinds of justifications for moving in this direction. But you can see how impulsivity or not being able to, lack of being able to say no to yourself, delayed gratification, how that weaves its way through all of those things, right? Even the person who's slothful. I, maybe a lot of my financial problems are become because I'm actually not using talents. I'm actually not working as much as I should. I'm not looking for ways to be a constructive member of society. I'm trying to figure out how can I work the absolute bare minimum so that I could just live life on my own terms, right? That would be a sinful, self-serving, slothful disposition. But you could see how that would be, could be rooted in this impulse that says, I just don't like diligence. Like I like the flexibility of waking up and saying, I actually don't feel like going into work today. So I want to structure my life around that, uh, in one sense, immature impulse. So the reason I'm bringing these up is because as you look at those areas in your finances, and this, was, this is what I did this week, it's not enough to say, okay, my maybe spending's out of control or these are some other areas to watch and I need to begin paying attention to this as we go through this series. It's also about saying, I need to learn how to discern the core sin or sins that are driving financial disorder to begin with. Which of these sins are particularly tempting for me to lean into and to self-justify? Maybe it's lust, maybe it's sloth, maybe it's gluttony. But if I don't, if I'm not aware of those, if I'm not understanding it, then again, I'm going to be working on the leaves of financial disorder and not actually attacking the root. So for the rest of the series, this is what I want us to do. And again, we're kind of building some scaffolding as we go down this path. I want you to take time this week and look at this list of seven deadly sins. Look at how it's, how it, your finances are manifesting and say, where's the line for me? Maybe there's more than one. But again, not, not at the level of plan yet or next steps. Just identify. Identify what is that core sin that for me or for us as a couple or for us as a family it's very easy for us to say, oh, this isn't a sin like that. This is, this is fine. We're okay. Start with an area that you've marked as red or yellow because those are the areas that you've identified you are not comfortable with the way things are going. But again, don't just jump to, oh, I'm going to look up on YouTube five tips and tricks to you know, deal with that. Start way, way before that at the root. Otherwise, you're just going to be polishing deck chairs on the Titanic. So you're going to discern the core sin driving your financial disorder. And then, in small ways, I want you to start adopting the counter-virtue of whatever that core sin is. Vices, which is, a, again, another old-school word for sin that holds us. Vices are cured by cooperating with God in the participation of their opposite. And that's why, if we want to deal with sin in our life, we don't just try to not sin. 
That's kind of like half the battle. The other half is to go in the opposite direction of our sinful impulse. Right? In those seven deadly sins, the church has identified, the church broadly speaking, historically, has identified seven heroic virtues. This is how you lean into and cure those particular places of brokenness. Not on your own, with God's help, you commit it to, to prayer, and, but you are particularly attentive to realizing, you know what, I'm really, really prone to pride. I don't want to admit it, but I'm really prone to seeing myself as better than other people. So it's not just a matter of not doing that. It's a matter of humbling myself, which means how do I do, how, how do I enter into practices? What are the practices that are going to help remind me that I'm, I'm a broken sinner too? That there but for the grace of God go I. And that's going to look different for every person, but we want to be cultivating these virtues. So whether it's humility to combat pride, um, charity, which is giving to combat greed, patience and understanding in order to combat wrath, kindness or encouragement. That word kindness we think of as being nice to someone. Traditionally, it's been understood as looking for ways to build up other people. Right. So envy is about how do I get what they have? I want that. I want my life to be built up. How do I go into life and saying, how do I build up this other person? How do I lift them up and elevate them? Lust, chastity, gluttony, temperance. Again, not, not consuming, but how do I put guardrails on my consumption? And then if I'm prone to slothfulness and, la and excessive laziness, where do I need to pick up the slack and start using my gifts? And so in this series, what I want us to do is to say, these are, these are the sins that particularly speak to me. And then, what's a little spiritual discipline that I need to begin incorporating? Start small. Maybe the discipline is, I tend to hoard all my money. I hate giving money away. It makes me feel so vulnerable. And you're like, well, just, just start giving $5. I don't care where, who, what context. Just start giving something. Just start exercising the counter vice. Start looking for ways to say no to yourself. Start small, be creative, ask for help. Reach out to Rick, myself, online. If there is something, you say, hey, spiritual disciplines that might help with pride. Spiritual disciplines that might help with gluttony. And don't try and fix it in a month, but just take a long view that says they're going to make little, little steps to seed health by countering what is particularly tempting for me in the area of finances. My concern moving through this series is if we don't understand some of the deeper spiritual roots of why we get into trouble, that having a pristine, brilliant budget, financial plan, system, strategies, as helpful as those may be, they're actually going to be insufficient to lead us into the kind of health God wants to provide for us. Now, again, I speak as someone who has been very humbled as I look at this list and say, where are these core temptations at work in my life? And so I'll be sharing in the weeks ahead about what I'm seeing in myself and the different ways that I'm addressing it. But we have to start at that root. But we're going to need God's help to do it. Let's pray. God, your word has such an expansive 
powerful understanding of sin. And if we don't understand it, then it can make, it seems reasonable to say, oh, why is the church of the Bible always talking about sin? Just, just be a good person. But it's so much, it's such a richer and deeper concept. God, sin's power is at work in our lives, even as believers. But you are delivering us and we want to cooperate with that deliverance. God, would you show everyone here in the week ahead in a way that is gracious and personal and that feels, yes, exposing, but in a, um, in a relieving way. It's like, oh, truce out in the open. This is good. Cards are on the table. Would you show us what is holding our hearts back? What is the root of the financial chaos so that as we move ahead, we can be cooperating with your spirit to nurture health at the root so that there is more and more good, healthy, God-glorifying, life-giving financial fruit as a result. I need your help in that, God. We need your help in that. We commit ourselves to you. Please have mercy upon us and help us. In Jesus' name, amen.